Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek into The Long Box of Darkness. listeners i'm glad to be back it's been two weeks since the last show i've been busy basically just watching a lot of horror movies since it's halloween i'm trying to get through the 31 days of horror so far so good but i had some time to read some comics as well obviously horror related i couldn't fit in a horror comic a day but i'm pretty close Um, So hopefully I'll be able to at least put in some more reading this month than I usually do uh, concerning horror at least. But this week we'll be looking at one of my favorite horror comics. It's uh, published by Dark Horse. It's from the Alien franchise. And it's called Alien Salvation. It was a one-shot comic book that was first published by Dark Horse Comics, as I said, in November 1993. Uh, the writer on it is Dave Gibbons and arts by Mike Mignola, both legends in their own right. Dave Gibbons, famous for doing Watchmen with Alan Moore. He was the artist on that series. He also um, did quite a few Green Lantern core stories in the 1980s, which he mostly illustrated. But uh, later on, he started focusing on writing somewhat. And he's written um, for the Green Lantern titles again since then. And he tried his um, hand at writing some horror comics for Dark Horse. And this is definitely one of his best. I really enjoy this comic. I first read it in 1993 when it came out. It was published in the Aliens magazine, which was um, reprinted in, um, I think, only in the UK at that time. But we did get it in South Africa at the comic book stores. And um, I think it ran in 1994, actually. Uh, And then the comic uh, was collected afterwards as Alien Sacrifice in a trade paperback. That was in the early 2000s. And it was uh, then collected again in the Aliens Omnibus, Volume 3. So if you want to pick it up, you can either pick it up in the Aliens Omnibus, Volume 3, or you could buy the new hardcover that was published in... 2013 by Dark Horse. It's a beautiful book. Uh, Mike Mignola cover and very sturdy, great design as all the Dark Horse comic books are. I'm thinking of books like Hellboy and Baltimore and I prefer these hardcovers to the paperbacks. The paperbacks are quite flimsy whereas these hardcovers are very sturdy and have a long shelf life. So, a great comic book. Uh, To give you a quick synopsis, um, it's about a spaceship carrying alien cargo and something goes wrong and um, the spaceship then crashes on a planet and the survivors have to contend with the aliens. But that simplifies the story a little bit. 
we'll get into it. There's some strong religious overtones and a lot, lot of uh, religious symbolism in this um, book. Obviously, uh, about more Catholic symbolism uh, and a lot of uh, Christian uh, iconography that you find in this story. Um, Selkirk, a cook on the ship cargo ship Nova Maru, um, he's forced at gunpoint to abandon his ship with his captain, a man called Captain Foss. And they crash land on a small planet, uh, but it's soon apparent that they have not entirely escaped the cargo that the Novamaru was carrying. And um, basically, as you all know, whenever aliens are involved in any story, these xenomorphs, uh, things go belly up. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens here too. And today we'll be using, to rate this book, we'll be using the Bulbous Egg Sack rating system. Um in line with the Alien franchise. So I'll start right off the bat and give you this rating. This comic is really great. Um, I give the art a 5 out of 5. So 5 bulbous XX out of 5 for the art. And the writing, 3 out of 5. The dialogue is a little bit wonky. Um, they don't really flesh out any of the other characters except for the main character of Selkirk. And he's fairly one-note. He's a religious fanatic. But the story's quite good, um, so I can't really fault the writing a lot, but I do think this was in the days when Dave Gibbons was still learning his um, craft as a comic book uh, writer. Um, obviously, he's a master at the art form, but the art itself by Mike Mignola is to die for. It's beautiful, lavishly illustrated, great colors by Dave Stewart, and... Um, I think Kevin Nolan also had a hand in making this. Uh, I think Kevin Nolan inked it. And um, really, really great covers. Uh, it was actually colored by Matt Hollingsworth. Sorry, not Dave Stewart. I'm so used to Dave Stewart coloring every single thing from Darth, Dark Horse. So Matt Hollingsworth did a great job of coloring this, this book. Lots of blacks, but with Mignola, that works really well. The, the, he plays with the darkness a lot giving you this eerie atmosphere. So let's get into the comic book itself. I should warn you, there's going to be some spoilers ahead. So if you want to read the book before listening to the discussion, uh, tune in about 10 minutes from now, or you can first go to read it and then come back and listen to what I have to say about the comic book. All right, so um, the title, Alien Salvation, the way that it's written on the cover is there's a small crucifix in the middle of the O in salvation. So you know immediately that this refers to salvation in a, a religious sense. And um, the cover is absolutely stunning. We've got um, this pool of blood wherein a crewman of uh, the cargo ship um, is squatting and an alien behind him seeming almost to caress him or whisper in his ear. And then behind them is a sort of uh, statue, um, one of those uh, angelical statues you find in graveyards sometimes, holding a crucifix. But the face of the angel, instead of being a beautifully sculpted Adonis, uh, as they usually are, this face is a skull with empty eye sockets. And then um, the cover is um, heavy on the blacks as well, a lot of red to signify the pool of blood. 
to illustrate the pool of blood. And uh, that's it. So you know what you're going to be getting a little bit. And the comic book starts off with the cargo ship Nova Maru. And it's flying through space. And we get to meet the crew briefly. Um, the first one we meet is Sal Kirk, the cook. Uh, he's the only religious person uh, in the crew. And you see the other crew members actually um, denigrating him, speaking to him in a derogatory fashion. They're scoffing at his religious beliefs. They don't care much for his God. And you you kind of get the sense that in this future society, um, wherein the alien universe is set, people have sort of abandoned religion. And they're more rational. Um, which, which is to be expected when science rules the day, right? So uh, the first few pages has uh, also a few images of this planet. And the planet... The way Mignola draws it looks like a giant eyeball hanging in space. Now, this is another important symbol that recurs throughout the comic book, the, the eye. There's a number of um, ways that Mignola and that Dave Gibbons, in fact, through the story plays with this concept of eyes turning up. Um, the crew members first liken the, the planet that they see from space, this planet, as the eyeball of God. And the eye is looking at them, uh, watching their every move. And then they tease Selkirk about that, saying that uh, Selkirk better watch it. God is watching him. And um, then we get to meet a couple of the crew members as they're sitting uh, around a table eating Selkirk's uh, food that he's prepared for them. And they're uh, insulting Selkirk, saying that the food he made is crap. Where'd he learn to cook, for God's sake, in a pigsty? And Selkirk just takes the abuse. He um, sort of uh, forgives them every time they seem to, to cross the line or say something, even when they say something terrible about his God, taking the Lord's name in vain, blasphemy, if you will. He, he sort of shrugs it off and uh, saying that the Lord will forgive. And you've got some crew members, a guy called Stutz, who's this lazy, portrayed as a very lazy person within only a first view of the panels. And then you've got a guy called Lee and another one called Boyd. We don't really learn much about them other than they're sort of uh, a pack of bullies. And then you've got a female, very attractive-looking woman called um, Dean. And she seems to be um, at least second-in-command, uh, captain Foss being the the captain of the ship, Lee, uh, uh, Dean seems to be calling the shots when he's not around. And then suddenly, as they're bantering and talking about um, platitudes uh, around the table, there is a red alert. And it says, emergency stations, there's a malfunction in the cargo hold. And it turns out that that is the cargo hold, uh, the stasis chamber of which had to be maintained by Stutz. But being lazy... He forgot to uh, do the checkups and to um, do the maintenance. So the stasis chamber has failed. So something has been loosed on the ship. The crew members are unaware of the cargo. Only Dean and the captain actually knows what they're really carrying. Then the captain shows up. He's all bloodied and half torn apart. And uh, he's uh, furious. He's in a rage about you know, what happened to him. The crew members don't know uh, actually what occurred at all. So the captain pulls out a gun and he blasts studs to kingdom come, 
for his failure to uh, do the maintenance on the stasis field. And he says, okay, this, this ship's gone to hell. There's only one lifeboat. Only two people can fit in it. I'm going and I need someone to, to pilot it because I'm too seriously injured. Um, he threatens them at gunpoint and he fixes on Selkirk. He says, Selkirk, get in here. Get into the lifeboat. We're going down to the planet and we're going to leave uh, the rest of the crew to suffer at the hands of the cargo. So they're begging the captain not to do this, but he doesn't want to hear anything. He's half insane. So they climb in the boat, and um, at gunpoint, he forces Selkirk to launch them towards the surface of the planet in this lifeboat. And then we see the captain complaining about uh, his horrific burns, and he mutters, acid, acid. Now, as alien fans, we know um, what caused those burns, the acidic blood of the xenomorphs. So then eventually they land safely on the planet and um, Selkirk, the first opportunity he gets, he gets out of the lifeboat and prays. And they don't have a lot of rations or food. It turns out that the rations they do have spoiled because the cargo ship they were piloting is actually not a priority for the company. And this is, of course, the company known as Wayland yutani who works in conjunction with the Terran military they wanted to uh, utilize the xenomorphs as bioweapons, but the military wanted them exterminated. However, Wayland yutani they didn't want their resources to go to waste, so they decided to stash the aliens that they have grown on a planet with a suitable population that could be um, uh, that the xenomorphs could use to uh, procreate and to infest the natives of the planet so uh, we've got Selkirk and the captain um, unaware of this at the moment uh, Selkirk has the odious job of keeping the captain alive um, he sees it as his religious duty so he has to hunt for food and they soon find out that the food on this planet is um, inedible it uh, tastes like poison and they have to spit it out then they see a, a sort of a asteroid entering the atmosphere, and there's an explosion and a crash. It turns out that that was the Nova Maru entering the orbit, uh, entering the atmosphere of the planet, and um, making landfall nearby. So Selkirk realizes that the Nova Maru will definitely have some supplies and a deep space distress beacon, which they could use to actually um, effect some kind of a rescue. But then the captain keeps going crazier and crazier. He's in so much pain and he's on drugs. The drugs are running out. Um, Selkirk finds him blasting something uh, in the surf on the beach. And it turns out to be a dead alien. And this is the first time that Selkirk actually gets a look at uh, one of the aliens. And the first time we actually get a look as readers at the way Mignola draws an alien. And it's a, a frightening xenomorph that Mignola pencils. But this alien has already died. The captain's just blasting away at its corpse, and Selkirk then comes to realize the true nature of their cargo and the horror um, of uh, what the company had planned for them. So that night, uh, Selkirk is forced to kill Captain Foss because Foss, he ran out of drugs, and he um, hallucinates. He sees Selkirk as an alien and tries to uh, shoot him. Selkirk then defends himself with a kind of tool. I think it, it, it almost looks like a knife or an ice pick. Yeah, it looks like an ice pick. I don't know why they would have an ice pick <laughs> on the ship. 
It could be a screwdriver, but it definitely looks like an ice pick. And uh, the captain has already lost one eye to acid. But during the battle, Selkirk stabs him, him in his remaining eye. All right, then Selkirk realizes every, every animal and every plant on this planet is um, inedible. He has to do something. So eventually, because they're already, he was already starving, he decides to cannibalize the captain. And um, he justifies that by saying that uh, God wants him to live. Uh, but he does feel very guilty. So now he prays for salvation even more. Salvation from what he just did, uh, cannibalizing his captain, but also salvation from this uh, planet, literally being saved. So the only thing he can do is to find the Nova Maru. And um, he cuts the captain up after his initial meal into uh, dry strips of whatever, what I can only describe it as jerky, and leaves his uh, skeleton on the beach and he plants a makeshift crucifix there uh, to keep the captain company. And then he walks through this uh, lush jungle towards where uh, he thinks the Nova Maru crashed. On the way, he meets some of the natives. He kills one because he thought it might be an alien, but it turns out to be this orangutan-looking um, uh, primate. And um, finally, he sees the Nova Maru. And just before he could enter it, he passes out. Then he has this horrible dream. And this is probably my favorite favorite uh, few panels, my favorite bit of panels in the comic book. You see him dreaming of Captain Foss. And Captain Foss's eye, the eye that uh, Selkirk stabbed out, is the planet itself, the eye of God, so to speak, like they described it in the beginning. And the eye starts bleeding. And one of the bird-like pterodactyl-looking creatures from the planet rips it out of Foss's skull. Now, this is all in the dream, so it's a nightmare, of course. And then you see the uh, half-eaten body of Captain Foss, and uh, Foss's face slowly turns into Selkirk's face, and he's got this, these burning red eyes, and he's sitting in a pool of blood with an alien behind him, and he says, uh, forgive me, Lord, no choice. I had no choice. I've done terrible, terrible things. And then he wakes up from the dream screaming. And just as he wakes up, he sees uh, this angelic figure emerging against the backdrop of uh, uh, sort of the sun, the dawn. And it turns out to be Dean, the lady from the ship, Dean, the second in command. She survived. And Selkirk is very glad um, Dean seems to have come through the ordeal, the crash of the Nova Maru without a scratch. She says the rest of the crew are dead, but um, they've got to get into the ship and activate the deep space distress beacon. Unfortunately, she says it's overrun with uh, xenomorphs. And during the, you know, their journey towards uh, the Nova Maru, Dean tells them more of the cargo that they were carrying and the plans of Wayland yutani what they wanted from uh, the xenomorphs, um, setting them up as bioweapons on a planet with uh, a uh, population of animals that could be uh, used by the xenomorphs to um, to spread their numbers. And so, basically, they wanted to turn this planet into an uh, alien reservation where the company could pick up aliens um, at their discretion for use in war. But as we know, uh, things never go that smoothly when aliens are involved. 
So we see this horrific scene that uh, Dean and Selkirk witnesses from uh, a place of hiding where they see these three natives fleeing from a xenomorph. And the xenomorph catches up to them and uses the little um, alien uh, inner mouth to uh, take out these creatures in a horrific fashion, in a horrific fashion. So Selkirk starts to panic. The alien hears him and then... Uh, they blast the alien, but more come towards running towards the sound of gunfire, and it's a, a battle between Selkirk and um, dozens of xenomorphs in this jungle. The only way they escape is by falling down a waterfall or jumping down a waterfall, and then um, they they uh, escape by floating down river. But they make their way back to the alien spaceship, and uh, during this time, we see Selkirk uh, being tempted by the idea of Dean. Now, Selkirk is completely celibate because of his religion, but he finds Dean very attractive, and he even imagines him uh, being with her. But he immediately prays again for uh, forgiveness from the Lord, even uh, having this just one carnal thought uh, for him is a sin. And uh, then uh, they, Dean uh, sets off a distraction to lure the aliens away from the Nova Maru, so that they can get to its interior and activate the distress beacon. So she um, detonates one of the fuel tanks, which is lying um, uh, a couple of hundred feet away from the main body of the ship. And then the aliens run towards that explosion. While that's happening, Selkirk and Dean try to enter the Nova Maru proper, but things don't go as planned. Um, Selkirk uh, trips over one of the crew members' bodies, and he sees this massive cavity in the crew member's chest. Obviously, a xenomorph uh, facehugger had uh, impregnated uh, this crew member, Boyd, I think it was, with an alien that burst out of his chest. So it seems that there might be some facehuggers in the cargo too, not just, obviously, the alien warrior types. There might even be a queen present. And then Dean comes running to save Selkirk, but she is taken... um, herself in the process by the aliens and Selkirk continues blasting the aliens and then he falls into a kind of pit and below the surface of the Nova Maru uh, we see him hanging from some wires and he witnesses the full majesty of the alien queen laying hundreds of eggs below ground Um, he manages to and he sees lots of the animals from this world that has been captured and sort of sealed uh, or glued to the walls by the alien, the resin they exude, and uh, their chests have all been um, ruptured from the chest bursters that emerged. So the aliens have been breeding, and they've been uh, multiplying over the last couple of weeks that Selkirk and Dean have been stuck here. So Selkirk manages to free himself from the wires, but... He has to still fight his way through a host of aliens. Luckily, it seems that the gun he's using, which was is the same gun that he uh, took from Captain Foss, uh, the ammo is uh, inexhaustible. It's um, uh, endless. He's got unlimited ammo that he can just keep uh, blasting these aliens. Finally, he makes it to the ship's interior, and then we see this robotic eyeball Again, another eyeball lying on the floor. And the eyeball sort of looking at uh, Selkirk accusingly. And he hears this voice, this 
um, broken voice and he sees uh, the remains of Dean. So the aliens had torn her apart, but miraculously she was still alive. But when he comes closer, he sees that in fact it isn't much of a miracle. She is an android, an artificial human, um, like uh, the ones that you know you see in the alien movies. Um, Bishop comes to mind from Aliens, the second alien movie. And she has been torn apart. You see her uh, robotic innards and the fluids leaking from every part of her body. And she's begging Selkirk to tie off the tube so that she can live long enough to activate the beacon. And then the company could salvage them. Now, Mike Mignola draws this in a a very uh, gruesome way. You see um, Dean is half naked. So you see um, the beautiful side of her body and you also see the the um, ruptured flesh on the opposite side. Um, she kind of looks like in, in Greek mythology, oh, or sorry, in Norse mythology, you've got Hela, uh, the goddess of death and of hell. Hela, uh, daughter of Loki, in a classical Norse mythology, she's at one side of her body is a beautiful um, girl, but the other side of her body is kind of like uh, the body of a zombie almost like the Batman villain Two-Face. Of course, she's not portrayed that way in the comic books by Marvel and in the upcoming movie, Thor uh, Ragnarok. She'll, she'll be portrayed by Kate Blanchett. She'll be all beautiful. But in traditional Norse mythology, that's the way she looks, half zombie, half human. And this is kind of what Dean looks like here, sitting on this chair. And she kind of uh, tries to bribe uh, Selkirk to save her by saying that the company will give him a bonus if he... Uh, helps her to salvage this operation. Meanwhile, the aliens are on the outer hatch. They're trying to come in to, to gain access um, or, or gain entrance to the cockpit where Dean and Selkirk are. And then uh, in, during conversation, Dean tells Selkirk about the plans and how uh, truly uh, horrific Wayland yutanis company policies are regarding employees. They didn't care anything for the crew. Uh, it was always going to be about sacrificing the crew and letting them uh, stay on the planet, probably marooning them, and um, sacrificing the indigenous life forms of this planet to the xenomorphs simply to make the company Wayland Yutani richer. So Selkirk becomes so enraged that he blasts uh, Dean apart, and um, then he decides that now he. He's been chosen as um, a kind of uh, avenging angel by the Lord because he has to sort of battle the true demon, as he calls it, the true Lucifer, which is the company itself. So at long last, he's found his goal. He sees himself now as a religious warrior. And he arms himself with a makeshift flamethrower and the gun, the seemingly invincible, inexhaustible uh, gun. And he uh, ventures towards the engines where he wants to self-destruct, uh, set the self-destruct of the ship and um, uh, subsequently detonate the nuclear engines. But he has to blast his way through a host of aliens. He does so. And um, finally, when he activates the self-destruct, we see him sitting down, um, abjecting himself to the Lord, praying and saying, hear my confession, Lord, in your mercy, forgive me my sins, deliver us from evil, grant me eternal salvation. Then just at that moment, the aliens break through the roof 
And as Selkirk con concludes his final prayer, one of the aliens sort of cups his face in its hands, and just before it uses the um, the miniature, the inner mouth part to uh, kill Selkirk, there's a giant nuclear explosion, and then we see we pull back um, into space where we see this eyeball of God sort of disappearing and it, it becomes all white uh, so this landmass on which they um, alighted is gone because of this giant nuclear explosion the final panel of the comic book is this uh, missionary vessel that um, has answered the call of the deep space distress beacon which was somehow activated during the course of the uh, the events that unfolded and they see the diminished landmass from space they send probes but they find no life and they say that uh, the crew of the Nova Maru are no more. May the Lord grant them true salvation. And that is the end of Alien Salvation. That's how it ends. So lots of action, lots of horror, great images, uh, frightening illustrations by Mignola, and a pretty good story by Dave Gibbons. I just found some of the characters a little bit wooden, as I mentioned earlier, but... I'm quite happy with, with the way this story uh, turned out. So in, in a religious sense, um, the alien itself can be seen as a type of demon. In, in At least in Selkirk's mind, he's battling demons. He doesn't really call them aliens or xenomorphs. Um, he's stuck in this religious mindset where he's um, battling this endless war against the forces of darkness, the forces of Satan, of Lucifer as he calls them. So um, they could also be seen, the aliens, as an embodiment of mankind's sins that have come back to haunt them. At least Selkirk definitely sees them as that. But uh, because he cannibalized his captain, he sees himself as deserving um, a place in hell. He should be eternally damned for doing that. He blames himself, and he also blames himself for abandoning the crew, for not trying to resist the captain when the captain held him at gunpoint to uh, escape the Nova Maru initially. So Selkirk, um, he needs to um, enact a rite of penance, and he constantly prays all the time, for, uh, as he says, for salvation, which is granted him in the very end. He sees his act of destroying the aliens and destroying the, the will of Wayland yutani the company, as his path into heaven so um, along the way you have a couple of uh, demonic figures you have of course the alien queen herself which Sel Selkirk describes as uh, Lilith uh, giving birth to a host of monsters in uh, Judaic or Hebrew um, mythology you have Lilith as that kind of demonic mother to monsters and demons but she, he also describes the alien as sort of Lucifer uh, begetting demons. And um, then you also have the character of Dean who takes on the role of a seductress or a temptress trying to tempt uh, Selkirk with the pleasures of the flesh but also with um, money or, or, or wealth by telling him that he would uh, receive a large bonus if he helps her out from the company. Um, so we see Selkirk sort of going through a bit of a character arc. He d does develop as a character 
but just not um, very deeply. He remains religious. He just sort of uh, reappropriates his religious views to accommodate this battle that he's involved in. Um, in the beginning, we see him being pushed around by the crew. He's kind of a milk toast, uh, a pushover. He's subservient to the wills of authority figures. And um, as these authority figures, for instance, Captain Foss, commit atrocities, Selkirk sort of blindly follows along um, as he believes that this is um, God's plan. He only assumes control of his own destiny later on when uh, one of the authority figures, Foss in this case, has been removed from the equation and Selkirk's left to his own devices. Um, so then his relationship with God is laid bare because he sort of continues praying, but um, he tries to find meaning in the situation where he's marooned on this island and um, he settles on his own course of action. He's not controlled by others. But then that is, um, again, uh, erased once he meets up with Dean, who is another authority figure. Um, and then only w with the removal of Dean by the aliens does Selkirk again assumes control of his own assume control of his own destiny. So he sees himself as sacrificing himself for the sins of of humanity. So Selkirk himself becomes a type of Jesus figure. Um, if you take the concept of sacrifice into account, he dies for the sins of Wayland Yutani of of humanity at the end. And if you think about the, the fall of the Nova Maru, the Nova Maru entering the atmosphere and crashing on the planet's surface, that sort of um, mirrors the fall of Lucifer. Um, the initial um, uh, battle for the heavens, Lucifer losing that, crash landing that, crashing down into hell, and then uh, Lucifer has to assume control of hell. And uh, this world, in fact, has become a hell. Selkirk describes it as that, uh, as this numerous, uh, in numerous, on numerous occasions. Uh, so the ship that crash lands literally falls from heaven. It could also be seen as crashing into, into Eden, because this world is a type of uh, Eden. It's beautiful, um, lush jungles, uh, you know, greenery everywhere. And then uh, the aliens, um, the queen at least, prefers to go underground, meaning that she sort of becomes the queen of hell, where she lays her eggs and, and they rise from below to torment the indigents of this world. So there's lots of religious parables, um, or should I say um, parallels <laughs> to this, uh, this tale. Um, it's a very deep story. I, I kind of like it. And um, it's it's an interesting take on the Alien franchise because, um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there hasn't been a story like this uh, throughout the whole uh, comic book uh, line of Aliens comics. So this is definitely my favorite one. I like the way they, um, you know, juxtapose uh, um, fanatics' religion with uh, real life. Uh, battle against um, forces beyond his control and how he sort of uh, sees that as a religious war uh, prophesied in um, the book of Revelations. All right, so I would definitely recommend this book 
to any horror fan, especially uh, if you like science fiction horror. This is full of uh, that. It's got some um, very, very good art. And this is, again, one of those horror novels that would be nothing without the art. The story would be just okay if it was in the hands of um, an artist of lower caliber, but in the hands of Mike Mignola, it becomes something truly wondrous. So definitely a comic book that all horror fans should have in their collection or at least should read. But I'm sure many of you horror fanatics have already um, read it, but it's nice to revisit it you know, good stories every now and then. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and when we come back, we'll have our Erin segment. That's right, folks, she's back. Suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct. Suppose there is a universal mind controlling everything, a God willing the behavior of every subatomic particle. Every particle has an antiparticle. Its mirror image, its negative side. Maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. Why weren't we told the truth? <laughs> Without the technology to confirm, it would have been another legend. But he was our prisoner, not yours! Turn to the show is the cutest little virago to ever host a podcast segment, Erin. Hi, Erin. How's it going? I refuse to complain. Well, that's a first. So, what have you been up to horror-wise? I'm still reading The Walking Dead. I'm past issue 100 now. Are you still enjoying it? Nah, it's a bit boring and predictable. The people find happiness, then something horrible happens. This formula gets repeated over and over again. Kirkman is plainness. I agree. I dropped off around issue 140 or so. It's like we just get it, Robert Kirkman. It's a horrible situation and a horrible situation. People do horrible things to each other. The horror is a bit too repetitive for me at the moment. That's basically what I said. Yeah, well, uh, let's move on, Aaron. You also recently watched a movie, didn't you? Yeah, Jurors Game on Netflix. So what did you think? I gave it a 7 out of 10. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. I guess a 7 means you enjoyed it. For you, that would be enjoyable. Uh, I would give it probably as high as an 8. Carla Gugino was terrific. I really like her. It's great to see another strong female protagonist taking the lead as a lot of them are doing in a lot of movies. Wonder Woman comes to mind. <laughs> and she has a great character arc too when she comes to grips with her childhood. 
through the trauma she experienced, which, which empowers her to save herself. What do you think about that? Yeah, she's good. But my favorite character was the dog. The dog. Jeez. <laughs> Any other uh, horror recommendations? Just once, I read a short story called A Matter of Style the other day. It's about vampires. Pretty good. Where can we find that if we're interested in reading it? In a collection called The Ottoman Dracula. It's on Kindle. Nice. I'll check it out. Well, thanks for your time, Erin. You can thank me by paying me. Well, gee, okay, well, we'll settle up later. We'll set it up later. Don't worry. You, you'll get your just desserts. All right, everybody. That's our Aaron segment for this week. When we come back after the break, it's our history of horror comics. Welcome to Herman's History of Horror, where we look at the origins of horror in sequential comic book form. This week, we'll be discussing the rise and fall of EC Comics. Enjoy, constant listeners. <laughs> this is part one of the rise and fall of EC Comics. I think it'll probably be a three-parter because there's quite a bit of facts and material to get through, and it's all very juicy. So I hope you enjoyed, listeners. Well, as you know, EC stands for Entertaining Comics. Um, they're famous for publishing such titles as Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and Shock Suspense Stories. And, of course, they've become famous for the controversy surrounding them um, as uh, they sort of changed the whole comic book industry with the advent of the comic book code being directly related to criticism leveled against EC for corrupting the minds of the innocent and um, juvenile delinquency being caused by comic books at the time. Um, of course, this uh, harkens back to Frederick Wortham, the uh, infamous psychologist who had uh, decided to publish a book called Seduction of the Innocent, which pointed a finger directly at horror comics and even some superhero comics, uh, saying that it corrupts the minds of American youth. And um, there were some hearings, panels in the um, Senate and in Washington, and they eventually decided to do a witch hunt. Uh, EC Comics took the brunt of that witch hunt, and they had to cancel most of their titles. And then they had to agree to this ridiculous comic book code, which limits the storytelling skills and uh, storytelling Stelling uh, techniques which they could have used and also the material um, and the themes so uh, it was kind of a blow for comics but I'm, the Silver Age uh, came out of that, the Silver Age of comics so I'm kind of um, a fan of the Silver Age, I think there, there were some good comics during the Silver Age just no good horror comics, that's the only problem there alright, well I shouldn't say no good horror comics, the Silver Age did have a few here and there, we'll discuss that in future shows, I've got my favorites among them but we're talking here about their uh, gruesome horror comics. There weren't any really, truly scary horror comics uh, published during the Silver Age, which is from probably 1957 um, onwards to the end of the 60s. But to get back to EC Comics, uh, their origin, um, they obviously riffed on uh, the success of Tales of the Unknown 
and tales of the unexpected and comic books like that. And then during the 1950s, they saw their most successful um, sales and the company became a well-known institution uh, all across uh, America, uh, the U.S. Uh, but they published material that was very graphic in nature, um, most of it horror comics. And uh, they mar marketed their products to children even though the covers often featured severed heads or strangulations, um, horrible things being done to women. So, um, yeah, it's quite terrible at the time. But um, like I say, the kids of those um, days were eating it up. And even some adults, too. A lot of adults were reading comics back then. It's kind of like the Japanese culture at the moment. Um, I, I w went for a trip to Japan recently, and when I was in Tokyo, I saw lots of people on the subway reading manga and comic books. And they never had, uh, at, at least to the best of my knowledge, they never had this um, comic book censorship. Uh, children, adults, anybody just reads a lot of uh, horror on a daily basis. They love their horror comic books. Uh, hentai, of course, there's a little bit of a um, censorship when it comes to hentai comic books, uh, hentai manga, which portrays, uh, you know, um, a sort of like pornographic comic books. But in terms of horror, I, I see everybody reading it. The kids just seem to not prefer horror, though. The younger kids, they sort of still read uh, comic books like Duraemon or Crayon Shinshin, lots of Japanese comic books geared towards kids. But with EC, it was a different tale. Lots of children read this um horror. And, um, of course, uh, the most famous se um, series from EC was called Tales from the Crypt. Um, in 1950, with the 17th issue of Crypt of Terror, uh, EC introduced a cadaverous crypt keeper as the host. And um, the first few issues uh, which the crypt keeper introduced um, had tales such as a man who stays young for decades by stealing the glands from useful corpses. Uh, there's also a tale of an executioner who decides to take the law into his own hands and he kills people and he thinks he uh, gets away with murder. And a private eye who finds an unidentified corpse in a hotel room and deduces who it is. Um, there's also a man who's convinced he's turned into a flesh-tearing werewolf, although that's not actually the case. He's just doing what a werewolf does in human form. So a uh, story of insanity. Um, but those weren't very good, those first few stories. I think the most memorable one was probably uh, one entitled The Living Corpse, which is about a frightened morgue attendant who keeps encountering the same dead body over and over again. Uh, the, the dead body keeps returning. And um, then there's a couple of other uh, good tales. But as I said, um, the strength of EC and their uh, subsequent uh, success lay behind the artists and the writers, which they employed. Uh, Al Feldstein, Johnny Craig, Harvey Kurtzman, Wally Wood, those guys. Um, so with the success of uh, Tales from the Crypt, or I should, uh, I should say the original uh, uh, name was Crypt of Terror, but then they changed it to Tales from the Crypt um, with the 20th issue. Um, so up until issue 19, it was still Crypt of Terror. 
um, we had a couple of uh, hosts, and, and the old witch and a vault keeper, uh, who narrated stories alongside the Crypt Keeper. And then the stories really started to pick up. You had uh, a story like um, RX Death, which is a Lovecraftian, uh, Lovecraftian tale, uh, where a man takes prescribed medicine, uh, which has a deadly ingredient, which transforms him mentally and physically until he actually starts to eat himself. He starts to digest himself. And he starts looking like this... Um, horrific Lovecraftian being. Um, and then um, from there on, the tales just became more horrific and more gruesome. And um, I think uh, Wally Wood had a very famous tale, uh, which sold really, really well in Tales of the Crypt, uh, issue 32, which was called Taint the Meat, It's the Humanity, which was set uh, during the uh, rationing era um, of World War II, where everybody was hungry constantly, they had to ration food, and a butcher called Zach Grissel, <laughs> appropriate name, gives in to greed, and he sells good meat to rich customers for a lot of money. Um, but, you know, he sells meat like horse and the poorer quality meats to the, the poor. And um, several people die of food poisoning because he's been selling them tainted meat, um, and then his son dies because of the tainted meat, which he ate at a friend's house. Um, so, uh, it turns out that, um, the, the butcher himself, uh, Jack Russell, he's been, um, uh, sort of feeding, it's sort of an early take on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre where they've been cannibalizing people, feeding their meat or selling their meat to, uh, the richer patrons so those stories were quite graphic the way Wally uh, illustrated them and uh, it's sort of like a gradual um, type of uh, increase in the horror presented by AC Comics and I think uh, once you present something like that by increments with every issue the public slowly um, but surely becomes uh, inured to it and they become immune to um, the shock value. So you could keep, you have to keep upping the ante and make it more horrific with the next issue. You have to keep trying to outdo yourself. And that's what all the writers and uh, artists in EC did, or tried to do at least. Um, so you had a couple of other memorable stories. Um, there was one called uh, Sucker for a Spider, which was about a man grinning uh, with delight as he shows an employee a, a spider which catches flies, paralyzes them, then injects them with a type of enzyme so he can suck out all the juices inside the bug. And um, the story, this is mirrored by the man who then murders his employees um, in the same way that this spider does. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. And then you also have a story called In a Buried Treasure, where the carriage of sort of like a, a very corpulent um, man runs over a little boy and it kills the little boy. Then uh, the man complains about the blood on his wheels. And um, then, you know, um, he gets his comeuppance by the crowd of townspeople who sort of uh, capture him and forces him to eat his riches, his gems, his diamonds, his gold. And then he's thrown to the people 
who then tears him apart to get to the, the diamonds inside his entrails. So very, very graphic depiction of this um, horrific scene. And uh, this, it just goes on and on. Lots of stories um, where the horror just keeps getting more terrifying, more graphic. Of course, there were a lot of variations on the werewolf and vampire stories too. You had a story, uh, I think it was in Tales of the Crypt number 35, according to my notes here, Midnight Mess, uh, it was called, where a man called Harold um, comes to a small town to visit his uh, a relative. And then he learns that some people have disappeared there. He discovers that um, uh, the relative uh, is a patron of a restaurant that only caters to vampires. Uh, they pr provide the vampires with various blood-related uh, dishes and meals and drinks. And um, the vampires sort of say, just like modern man, uh, at least this is what one of the vampires um, sort of uh, say to Harold as he speaks to him. He says, just like modern man, we leave the hunting to professionals and we are just the customers. You know, just like you do with animals, we do with humanity, but not all of us hunt. We like to go to establishments where we're served the food. Then um, one of the hunters, so-called, or, or butchers, um, that string up Harold, tap his juggler vein, and you know, uh, uses him as a type of tap <laughs> to pour blood to the thirsty uh, patrons of the, or to the thirsty diners. And then you have a werewolf tale, a great one in Tales of the Crypt, number forty-one, I think, or forty-two, forty-one. Sorry, forty-one. Concerto for concerto for violin and werewolf. It's a tale of a violinist, and his um, old uh, teacher and mentor was a Transylvanian um, who had a priceless Stradivarius violin, um, which was also a rapid-fire gun that fired silver bullets. And um, they're battling this ta entire town of werewolves, and you have these very, very horrific scenes of uh, the werewolves sort of stripping their victims of every inch of flesh. So, yeah, you have a lot of these um, type of tales. Now, that's just a couple of examples. Um, there were also a few stories by Ray Bradbury, um, which uh, Ray Bradbury obviously being a famous short story writer of science fiction and the odd horror story. He's one of my favorite writers. And um, at the time, in the 1950s, he was billed as America's best horror writer. So uh, EC sort of asked him or they uh, adapted first of they adapted one of his stories without permission. Um, and then Bradbury initially was um, fine with it, um, providing that, you know, obviously they would subsequently pay him for the stories that they could adapt in the future. So they had some Bradbury stories and that only increased the uh, renown of EC Comics. So that brings us to, since they were so popular, this Tales of the Crypt line, they obviously wanted to expand. So um, they had a couple of other artists and writers lined up. Um, not all could be given a page uh, space in Tales of the Crypt. So they started a second and a third line, the Vault of Horror being the second one. But we'll discuss that next week as we continue our rise and fall of EC Comics in our horror history segment. Okay, after the break, 
We'll be back with horror profiles. might have realized I've been watching John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness uh, recently and uh, that's why I put so many audio clips from that movie in here because we're discussing the titular Prince of Darkness today Lucifer Morningstar himself at least this is the comic book version um, as seen in DC's Vertigo comics this is not the TV version which is based off of um, Jim, uh, Mike Carey's comic book. But um, I'm not a big fan of the Lucifer TV series. Um, the character of Lucifer is not the same as the one from the comic books. In fact, in the comic books uh, in DC, he first made an appearance... Well, he's been making appearances all over DC continuity for decades, but the uh, characterization of Lucifer that has seemed to stick... Um, at least in DC horror comics, is the version popularized by Neil Gaiman in his Sandman comics, where you had Morpheus, the Sandman, um, squaring off against Lucifer um, in the storyline um, Preludes and Nocturnes. When Morpheus seeks his emblems of power, Lucifer, or one of the demons um, in Hell, uh, possesses um, the Sandman's helmet and um, his helm. Sandman goes to hell, confronts Lucifer, and sort of bests Lucifer in a type of um, philosophical uh, battle of, of personal philosophy. And uh, the Sandman trumps Lucifer. Lucifer swears revenge. But later on, he comes to agree with Morpheus's assessment of his role as Lord of Hell. He gives up his um, authority in hell. He, he no longer wants to be the ruler. Uh, he sees that as slavery uh, to the whims of his creator, and he abandons his post, leaving Hal in disarray, um, or at first uh, leaving it in the care of Morpheus, who then has to find new custodians for Hal. Um, and that is uh, chronicled in the Sandman Seasons of Mists, um, when Lucifer abandons Hal. So at first, um, Neil Gaiman wanted um, the artist to draw, the artists who drew Lucifer, to make him look like David Bowie. And he sort of does uh, look like David Bowie throughout um, his uh, Vertigo incarnation. Um, he, much uh, like the TV show, uh, he operates a nightclub called Lux. Um, Lux is a nightclub where, you know, he hosts um, humans, but also uh, demons and other supernatural beings. And he's obviously the lord of music, so he's a great piano player. He often plays the piano by himself. And he seems to have a, a girlfriend uh, called Mazikeen. She's one of the Lilim, the uh, daughters of Lilith. 
Uh, she um, is with him throughout his whole um, uh, Lucifer series, the Vertigo series that he starred in, which ran for 75 issues, exactly as long as Neil Gaiman's Sandman ran. And that series was written by Mike Carey, um, with art by a variety of artists. Um, but uh, I uh, think later on the series, uh, as if I can remember correctly, it veered off more into fantasy, dark fantasy. It wasn't so much horror at the end, but in the beginning there were definitely some truly horrific elements, much like in the Sandman comic book. So uh, Lucifer then... Um, uh, he follows his story, his story arc where he uh, tries to defy uh, his creator again. He wants to be free from uh, predestination and he wants to effect his own uh, destiny. So he, or not destiny, I should say, he doesn't believe in destiny. He wants to uh, use his own will to make his own choices, uh, which the uh, creator could, cannot predict. So he, in fact, decides that the best thing to do is to create his own universe, completely separate from the uh, universe of his creator. And he does so, and that causes um, a lot of trouble on the supernatural plane, and lots of uh, powerful entities have a vested interest in this new creation, and they uh, sort of befriend or Lucifer or battle Lucifer for possession of this new creation. And at the very end of the series, Lucifer sort of disappears into a non-realm, which seems to be a comic book page, which is completely blank. And he just flies off completely free from the will uh, and the machinations of his creator. So it's a great series. I can recommend it for everybody. But the character of Lucifer himself is uh, the true uh, standout here. Um, he's uh, portrayed as a rebel, but he's also incredibly almost omnisciently intelligent. He's the second most powerful being in creation, right after God himself. And he um, has very powerful enemies who um, try to defeat him through trickery, most of all. But Lucifer uh, always uh, wins due to his vast intellect and his deceit being uh, so much more um, sinister and devious than his opponent's than that of his opponents. So it's a, uh, he's definitely one of the best DC horror characters. Uh, of course, Marvel has their own version of, of Lucifer, which could be either Mephisto, or there is actually a Satan in Marvel as well. But I, I like to think of Mephisto as their um, Lucifer. But we'll discuss him in the future. Here we're looking at DC's Lucifer. And... Um, I think there were 11 trade paperbacks published of Lucifer's series, which ran from uh, issue 1 to 75. It ended in 2006, so it's still in print. Um, you'll still be able to get it. There's some really great story arcs. And Lucifer has recently also shown up in DC Comics' New 52. Uh, but here he's more influenced by a sort of Christian mythology. Um, he seems to be able to control souls. Uh, whereas the Lucifer from Vertigo didn't care uh, an iota for any souls. He, in fact, hated the fact that mortals thought that he wants to bargain for their souls or make deals with them. Uh, so here in the New 52, he does, in fact, have this kind of uh, power over the souls of others. 
So Lucifer Morningstar, one of the best horror characters that DC has produced, of course, it's not a truly original character, but I think this portrayal is um, kind of uh, original. Lucifer himself um, has um, has a very uh, beautiful, very attractive appearance as fitting befitting an angel, um, and that only makes him more horrific because of the incredible power and the will that lurks beneath this um, attractive veneer. So he's seen such horrors like uh, um, Clive Barker's uh, Pinhead says, we've got such sights to show you. And that's definitely what Lucifer does in the pages of his comic. He shows the readers such terrible, terrible sights. And uh, I would uh, recommend that you pick that up if you haven't already. Or revisit the series. As I said, it's definitely a series that's eminently re-readable. And one of my favorite Vertigo series, in fact. Who are you carrying all those bricks for, anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you. Let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste. Don't swallow. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Well, that's about enough out of me this week. Uh, but I'd like to leave you with some recommendations before I go. Stuff that I've been reading, stuff that I've got um, on order that haven't arrived yet but should be here soon, hopefully in time for Halloween. First off, let's start with the big one, the granddaddy of all horror comic books released this year. It's an omnibus from DC entitled Swamp Thing, The Bronze Age. Now, this is 700-plus pages of classic Swamp Thing stories. It collects the entire first run of Swamp Thing, the House of Secrets comic, which he first appeared in. Then you've got Swamp Thing 1 to 20, with art by Bernie Wrightson, written by Len Wein. Then you've got the new series, Saga of the Swamp Thing, from issue 1 to issue 19, plus the annuals. And it's uh, just before Alan Moore started his seminal run, seminal run on the series. So you've got all those great, classic, Bronze Age Swamp Thing comic books. And then... Uh, once you've, you're finished with them, you can start on the Alan Moore stuff. But some great, great stories, awesome art, fantastic horror found within these pages. I would recommend that. It's pretty cheap on Amazon. I think it's uh, 61 or 62 US dollars. Um, I mean, that might sound expensive, uh, expensive, but this is an omnibus. And DC does their omnibuses uh, right, I think. Um, they really are very, very well put together. And they look great on your shelf. 
and they read easily too. Um, I just get a little bit of a reading table. Uh, I almost never hold an omnibus on my lap or in my hands. It's just too heavy. I've got a bit of an elevated um, reading tray, which you can pick up at uh, IKEA. Uh, it works wonders. You put the omnibus on it um, at a nice angle, about a 30-degree angle. You flip the pages. It's great. So Swamp Thing, the Bronze Age Omnibus. I heartily recommend that. Then I want to recommend another omnibus that's slated to be released on the 11th of November. Now, this is um, after Halloween, but... Um, Unfortunately, we can't do anything about that. It will be worth the wait, though. This is Clive Barker's Hellraiser Omnibus. Now, this doesn't collect the early Hellraiser comic books from the 90s. It collects the new series, issue 1 to 20, published by Boom Studios. And uh, it's written by Clive Barker himself, with amazing art by a variety of artists. Truly great horror. I bought the single issues on on Comixology and I need the collection because I don't have them physically. I like to own books. Digital for me is just a way to preview a comic to see if I would eventually buy it in physical form. So this is definitely worth it. Uh, pick that up if you can. It's about um, 25 US dollars. It's a little bit more expensive in the UK at 25 pounds. I was expecting it to be a little bit cheaper but um, still, I, I think worth it. It's not a hardcover, though. It is a paperback. Still, Boom uh, does their paperbacks pretty well. They they print them uh, in a sturdy fashion with a great spine. So um, you can read them for many, many years, and they won't fall apart on you, even though it's a paperback. All right, then um, I want to recommend something that I just can't get enough of. I've been reading it the whole week. And um, I'm still rereading some chapters because it's so great. It's so funny. Uh, it's a nonfiction book published by a guy called Grady Hendrix. And it's called Paperbacks from Hell. And what this is, is it is a, a sort of chronicle of the sordid history of the horror paperback boom from the 1960s and 1970s and early 1980s. And uh, Grady... Uh, he's a great writer. I've read some horror novels uh, by him before. A horror Store, which is about a haunted Ikea outlet. Um, and also My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is a great comedic horror novel. Um, I'm currently working my way through a short story collection of his called... Um, I think it's called something like Leprechauns and Devil Cats. Dead Leprechauns and Devil Cats. Um I'm not quite sure of the title now, but it's four short stories, and it's really funny. But it is horror. It's definitely horror. Dead leprechauns and devil cats. That's it. Oh, what's happening to my brain? All right. So um, this, though, uh, Paperbacks from Hell, it's got some great excerpts, uh, some blurbs about uh, horror novels from back in the day. Most of these horror novels are out of print, but reading the synopses provided by Hendrix is uh, worth the purchase alone. Of course, it includes all the covers. They reprint all the covers of the uh, horror novels, and that's also worth it because you've got some great cover art, truly horrific and terrifying images that assail your eyes. I'd like to read, uh, if I may, a short um, uh, two of these excerpts just to give you a bit of a taste of uh, Hendrix's writing and how good he is. Okay, the first one um, is about... Uh, horror novel entitled Dark Angel 
and this this is one of the ones that's out of print. But after reading this blurb, I really, really wanted to buy this thing on Kindle or or somehow order it and read it. I just couldn't find it anywhere. So here it is, the synopses of Dark Angel. Listen to this. Hendrix writes, The fascination with priest sex met with the adoration of JP2 in Dark Angel, 1982's overheated hothouse of a novel that tells the story of how the Pope was stalked by a flesh-hungry succubus and how one lone wolf Irish-American priest risked everything to slake the she-demon's insatiable thirst for man-flesh and save John Paul's celibacy. John O'Meara, a tough Irish kid born to Pennsylvania steelworkers, became a college football star known as The Wolf before attending seminary in Boston. Now he functions as valet and bodyguard to Cardinal Ritchie, the Pope's right-hand man, who gets humped to death by a succubus in Vatican City. Full of thick blooming flowers and ripe nightmares where unusually hugely pregnant nuns give birth to clawed monsters with the face of Cardinal Ritchie, Dark Angel exists in a state of maximum hysteria. As for the succubus, Angela Tenza, she drives Porsches and must have sex every seven days in order to stay alive. Her latest Romeo is a Eurotrash aristocrat who says things like, I want to fuck that fatness out of you, as Angela gorges on artichokes and Mexican food. Because she's carrying Cardinal Richie's baby! This is the kind of book in which a priest resists fleshy temptation by jamming a nail through his hand. People vomit their souls into toilets and succubuses ooze black breast milk. And when Joe discovers that the succubus can only be destroyed if she's decapitated at the moment of orgasm, you know this book is about to go so far over the top it achieves orbit. <laughs> Whoa, this guy. Wow, he's good at um, writing up a uh, bit of a... Well, sort of like a promotional um, uh, excerpt for these books because I, after reading it, I just want to like find it and buy it and hunt it down in secondhand bookstores. Unfortunately, here where I am in Taipei, those books are hard to come by. All right, so um, I'll do one more, uh, uh, one about a book called The Little People written by John Christopher, a novel of pure terror, um, as the front cover uh, suggests. And Hendrix writes about this novel, he says, the little people, a gorgeous secretary inherits an Irish castle from a distant relative and converts it into a B&B &B to show her patronizing lawyer fiancé that she can stand on her own. On opening weekend, the house is full of guests, an Irish dreamboat alcoholic, two bickering Americans with a hot-to-trot teenage daughter, and a married couple who met in a concentration camp. But some uninvited guests are lurking in the basement. The Gestapo Corns. <laughs> the Gestapo Corns live in the dark, battling their ancient rat enemies with teeny bullwhips. Shortly after we meet them, the author lets us know that these are not just any Nazi leprechauns. These are psychic Nazi leprechauns who enjoy S&M, are covered with scars from pleasure pain sessions with their creator, were trained as sex slaves for full-sized human men, and are actually stunted fetuses taken from Jewish concentration camp victims. And one of them is named Adolf. <laughs> While all of this information is being hosed into the reader's eyes like a geyser of crazy, this book rockets from zero to 60 on the loony meter and over delivers on practically every level. <laughs> if you're a horror fan, you got to pick this up. That's the, 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 the be all and end all of this uh, segment. So those are the books I can recommend. 
if you have anything you would want to recommend to me, which I uh, can do on the show, or which I can, which can tide me over until Halloween, please do so by sending any feedback to uh, darklongbox at gmail.com. That's darklongbox at gmail. You can also uh, reach me on Twitter at darklongbox, or check out the blog at uh, which is longboxofdarkness.com. So I would love to hear from you, but until next week, this is it for me. So tune in again. It might be next, next week. It could be in two weeks for another episode of The Long Box of Darkness. Sweet dreams, constant listeners. Until we meet again. <laughs>